I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is a golden retriever and I am a grumpy cat, talk about all the coolness that comes from living a bookish life. Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author awesome, a bookseller bingo, a member of a book club marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. In this episode, we talk with Gwenda Bond, a New York Times bestselling author whose scope of fiction includes middle grade and young adult fiction, most with definitive fantasy elements. Her most recent book, published this past fall, however, is her very first adult rom-com, a paranormal romance titled Not Your Average Hot Guy that involves the son of Satan. An anticipated sequel is due to hit bookstores in April 2022. Gwenda has vast experience in the literary world. She has published over 10 books, has been a writer for Publishers Weekly magazine, collaborated to write a serial podcast, and been chosen by the Duffer Brothers, creators of the mega-hit Netflix series Stranger Things, to write a novel that explores what Eleven's mother's story was. The thing that unites all these pieces is simple. It's definitely not boring. Gwenda revels in the wacky and weird, and she was a ton of fun to chat with this week. But first, we've got uh, a new season. We season do have, six. We do have a new season, which is exciting. Nothing exciting is really going on over here. My middle child has COVID. I mean, that's not exciting. It it just it is. So he's doing fine, but now I'm just like, okay, are the rest of us going to get it? What what What's the next week or two going to look like? So I may be getting lots more reading done. We had our first snowfall that, late this past week. That was a lot of fun. I love a, a good snow as long as it's gone within a couple of days and I don't have to go anywhere. But it was the perfect opportunity to snuggle down with my hot cup of tea and finish up some books. The worst part for me is that it was the first snowfall that my senior drove in. And so I was a little bit pins and needle because, you know, Louisville does not know what to do when snow falls. Well, Carrie, I want to tell you, you know, we all feel a little conflicted about Facebook in general, right? Right. So one of the things that's weird is, you know, you're talking about something with a friend on the phone or with your family over dinner, and then it seems like advertisements for things related to that pop up on your Facebook. Right. Well, I didn't have that exact thing happen, but, I, you know, I am an animal lover. And so as I'm scrolling through Facebook, I often stop on animal videos that pop up just because they make me happy. And so what started out is me just looking at cute dog videos, and then it melded into pregnant dogs having puppies, so puppy videos. And I must have like stopped on those a little too long because now Facebook has started to send me all kinds of animal birthing videos. (laughs) So now I have seen elephant births and giraffe births and horse births and even a, a leopard birth. And then there's a, I forget even, it's some exotic animal up Penguin, not a penguin. What are those things called that look kind of like an armadillo? But um, oh, I can't oh, think of pe- it. Pangolin, pangolin. I yes, I even saw a pangolin birth. And when I'm saying that I'm seeing the birth, I don't mean if you're in a delivery room and someone's filming it from the mother's head down. I mean, <laughs> I'm getting full on crotch shots in these birthing videos. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I gotta ask this question. When those started popping up. Did you watch them? 
Well, I guess so, because I'm like, what the hell? Are they really going to show like this whole birth up close and personal? You know, it's sort of like, it's like that car crash that you can't stop watching. Right? I mean, you know, the more you watch it, the more it thinks you like it. And so it keeps sending you that. So my advice to you is step away from the coochie shots. Okay. (laughs) But okay. So I totally agree, but it's really hard to look away when you see a giraffe giving birth and they don't lay down. They're standing up and this poor baby giraffe literally like drops on its head six, seven feet. And you're like, how does that poor giraffe survive that? I agree. I I should just stop watching them. But yet it, it is fascinating in a weird weird way anyway i just thought i would share that because that is something that has been keeping you occupied it sounds like <laughs> yes <laughs> the next uh, the next thing is all of your book selections are going to be about weird animal birthing rituals or something i know right let's hope not <laughs> let me tell you i crocheted you a snail when you love that did. snail book and i crocheted you a bee because of Nur- murmur of bees God. i am not crocheting any birth scenes <laughs> not gonna happen yes. don't Please even don't. ask i want no crowning crochet <laughs> objects that's bad very bad. Yeah. The well, only positive thing about that would be to have to explain to my husband and to see the look on his face when I tried to explain <laughs> that crochet to him. That might be worth it. Oh, well, enough of that. I think we need to get onto something much more serious, although Gwenda is a ton of fun and she likes some weird and wacky too. I wonder if she's ever watched any <laughs> animal birthing videos. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, Gwenda, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, it's very exciting. You know, Kentucky has such a wealth of of writing treasure here. So many great authors. And you are one that's been on my radar for a while. I'm glad that we finally get to talk to you. Uh, First, I want to ask you a little bit about your childhood reading habits. Were you a big reader as as a kid? Oh, yes. Obnoxiously so. Uh, I grew up in Jackson County, which is part of eastern Kentucky. For those who don't know, very rural. They still only have one stoplight. My parents both worked in the education system, and so they were teachers when I was younger. But by the time I was had already turned into a reader, my dad had become principal of the elementary school, and then later my mom was principal of the high school. Oh, wow. I always say, I came by my authority issues, honestly. <laughs> Um, however, the great thing about that was that it meant I had year round access to our school libraries, which were at that time, especially much better than the local public library that we had. And we were about an hour from the nearest bookstore. Uh, so I was always a voracious reader. My parents were readers and I was totally that snobby, pretentious kid (laughs) for most of my childhood who was like romance. I read it in secret and don't admit to it. Um, (laughs) And then came back around to it as an adult. But I have always been a very Catholic reader in terms of not the religion, but in terms of reading all sorts of stuff. So even though fantasy and science fiction is probably my home country as a reader, I always read a little bit of everything. I know when I was a kid, I was the type of kid that I would read the same, like I would find a book that I loved and I would read it 
so many times that I could just, when I would come home from school and have a snack, I could pick it up at any point in the book and know exactly where I was. And there were certain books that I just reread. Did you have books like that? Or did you usually bounce around from book to book to book? I mostly bounced around. I was actually incredibly susceptible to being scared as a kid. So of course I loved scary things. Uh, And I had a brother who was four years older, so I would steal his Stephen King novels and read them. And also Alfred Hitchcock was a huge brand as part of my childhood and had all of these record albums that you literally put on a record player people yes i'm hashtag old <laughs> and uh and like uh they would have like a sound effect where he would do the intro and outro and then there would be these little spooky kind of urban legend stories in between and it would sound as if the narrator of the album was drowning and then at the end like you hear like the water sound effect like go up and they also had tons of anthologies that were like classic tales of suspense and things like that. So I read a lot of short fiction, you know, your monkey's paw, a lot of Poe, all of that stuff in those Alfred Hitchcock anthologies, the birds, the most dangerous game. Um, And I still have my copy of some of these. And it's like, this was great for, you know, like the eight year old (laughs) reading it. But uh, I would read or memorize picture books before I could read. I would, because I would have my parents read them to me so many times, or I would make up stories based on the pictures. Mm -hmm. And I got in trouble in kindergarten for doing this. (laughs) Mrs. Little, who was not the most diplomatic, perhaps, (laughs) called me out and said, you know, in front of everyone, that's not what happens in that book. You can't read. And (laughs) And I said, maybe you can't read. And she sent me to see my dad, the principal. Oh, So yeah, that's a pretty encapsulates my personality (laughs) from the jump type childhood anecdote. Well, let's transition a little bit to what you published recently and your most recent book, which I I think came out just like a few months ago. Is it kind of a new genre for you? You've written (laughs) middle grade and you've written YA and this is your first rom-com. And it's called Not Your Average Hot Guy. So for people who are not familiar with it, haven't read it, how would you describe it? Well, it's your everyday average rom-com at the possible end of the world. Uh, It involves a girl who has just graduated from college and is at loose ends working at her family's escape room business, who is nervous about being the only person in charge over a weekend while her mother has gone to an acceptance award. And it turns out rightly so, because a cult shows up and steals a real grimoire they've accidentally put into one of the rooms. And she gets embroiled in what might be a trigger of the apocalypse and has to stop it with the Prince of Hell, Luke Morningstar. Um <laughs> A guy who's also looking for what he should do with his life and who has big daddy issues. (laughs) (laughs) I love that description. (laughs) It's my goofy screwball rom-com book of my just weird interests. It's my Dan Brown as screwball book (laughs) is the other way I describe it. When Amy and I, one of the questions that came up was like, you know, how, where did this idea come from? But, <laughs> but as we kind of talked about it, you know, he's kind of like almost the ultimate bad boy. Where did that idea come from? And and why do you think, what is the appeal of the bad boy? Well, so 
I am like Callie, the heroine in the book, not really a fan of bad boys. And so I would say that Luke is someone who is struggling because he's, he should be the penultimate mm-hmm. bad boy, right? And certainly his father thinks he should be, and his mother thinks he is because she thinks all men are bad. And I really wanted to kind of have a character who's defining themselves on their own terms. I also jokingly say, like, I try to only write healthy relationships, (laughs) which can be a problem at times. The idea for this came from a really definite experience. That was Phoebe the cat. (laughs) (laughs) And I was afraid she was going to unplug my camera slash microphone, which she's been doing lately. I was at a conference in the Southeastern Young Adult Festival, which is held in Murfreesboro and arranged by some librarians there in Tennessee and is a great a great festival and they put us all in the same hotel near a bunch of strip mall businesses and things middle of winter i hadn't seen anyone in ages and so i went into full activity director's mode which i can do sometimes i had been wanting to do an escape room and there was one next to our hotel and i I managed to get a group of people to agree to go with me And it was a family-run business, just like in the book. We did a Sherlock Holmes-themed room, and there was a big fuffy dog behind the counter. And I I love a family business in any kind of book, and so I thought this would be a really interesting setting, like a character who grew up around this. And I don't know, like the grimoire idea just immediately sort of came because there's props there. And by the time I drove home, I had the first five pages and really Mm -hmm. the voice and idea of the book. And that is very rare (laughs) for it to come that quickly and easily. Um, And I did develop it some from there and had to set it aside and write some other things. And I would go back to it. And I really kept it a secret. It was kind of one of those secret projects that you start and you're like this is wacky but it's giving me joy so I'm just gonna keep doing it till someone tells me not to (laughs) so when I was reading it I was really impressed that you managed to work in things that wouldn't normally go together so one of those things and Amy had to say you're gonna have to explain who this is but I took a class in college and we learned about Floyd Collins Ah, and for those who don't know Floyd Collins He lived in Kentucky and he helped discover a lot of the caves uh, down in the Mammoth Cave system. And he actually, in 1925, became trapped in a cave. And I mean, he ended up dying, but it was like this huge national reporters were coming to Kentucky because he had gotten trapped in this cave. So anyway, in the book, you managed to talk about Floyd Collins. You talk about Lilith from Jewish mythology. (laughs) You know, there's just a lot of different things that you're pulling in. So Did you have to do research to learn about all those things? Or were these just sort of nuggets of interest that you were able to work in? A lot of them are nuggets of interest um, or just nerdy things I've picked up. I wanted Callie to be kind of that Tessa Dare to memorize random facts. I wanted Callie to be that. In fact, in the first draft, there were a lot more random facts and I had to take some of them out. And so I did do uh, like refresher research on most stuff, but for the most part, it was things I was familiar with already. And the Floyd Collins story is so wild because of course they couldn't reach him, but he was close enough to the edge that he could give interviews to all these people. And also his body. Now I would have to look this up. I'm going to get it wrong, but I do know it was stolen at least once. His corpse was put on display for a number of years at another local cave nearby. And 
I'm not sure it finally maybe was buried or did it get stolen again and disappear? I can't remember. But I mean, there's just like so much wacky history there. But yeah, all of the lore, I would say, except the stuff that I've obviously mixed and matched and made up. I like sticks being a dragon Mm -hmm. uh, and also the uh, hell being a more traditional kind of a monarchy structure. But all of it is a jumping off point from real things exist, including the grimoire itself and all the demonology stuff. I created Porsoff, but he is very much like in that same tradition as those wacky demons in the Ars Gosha. So... Yeah, it's just kind of a, it was a place to put all my strange interests. Well, I was like, wow, Floyd Collins. Nobody ever talks about <laughs> Floyd Collins. And here's I a was book. Like Kentucky. <laughs> Kentucky so, I don't know. It spoke to me. I was like, oh, that's cool. I yeah. Somebody mentioned something that I've actually I, heard about. <laughs> actually, that's one of my favorite lines in the book is like that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, I don't want to be the Floyd Collins of Portugal. Right, right. <laughs> So you said that when you were a teenager that you were sort of a secret romance reader. So Mm. did you always have it in your head that you eventually wanted to write a romance or a rom-com? For sure not. I became a romance reader and like as a big part of my reading about 11 years ago as part of my writing for Publishers Weekly. Uh, And I think I've always been drawn to genres that get maligned just because I come out of science fiction and fantasy and it's like, whoa, what threatens, you know, people who make fun of this? And uh, that was around the time that urban fantasy was also having a huge heyday, which I love. And has a lot of overlap with romance. And I think I was just that pretentious, like, I can't be into girly things openly kid when I was younger. Gen X, you know, we have our flaws. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, we had to hold on to our cynical detachment. You know, that was one of them. I still um, haven't let go of mine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I feel like I'm half Golden Retriever, half Dorothy Parker. Like, that's, <laughs> I will always be trapped. Trapped between, like, I'm like, Dorothy Parker, if she was an optimist. But romance uh i was writing about it for pw i wrote a couple of articles and one of them won uh an award from rwa called the veritas award which is for basically non-snarky journalism and i was like you know i should learn more about this and i went to the convention because i thought i'll probably never get another award and just found everyone lovely and delightful and i just became obsessed with reading the books it's when you discover romance and fall in love with it i think everyone that does just kind of goes through a period where you just inhale authors. And Jenny Cruzy was my first author that I discovered. And, and Courtney Milan had just started writing and I met Sarah McLean who had just published in YA at that RWA. And she was, when we hit it off. So I feel like it's one of those genres that I just immediately fell in love with. And the thing that was striking about it, I always say, when I was reporting those pieces was how much the people, the editors and publicists and authors I talked to, how much fans of each other they were and how much they recommended books from other houses and were just clearly really, really happy to work on those books. And that's an unusual thing in my experience. Like you almost never interview an editor when you're asking them about trends and they're like, look at this book from this, you know, competitor that never happens, but it happened all the time when I was reporting on romance. Was the transition from writing YA and middle grade books 
to adult rom-com, was that a difficult transition? <laughs> uh, it was not because it was sort of accidental. Um, I didn't really know where these books would go. And I think they could have easily gone either way. So there's a sequel to Not Your Average Hot Guy, The Date from Hell. And first off, I did not think that this would sell. <laughs> I mean, no one was looking for paranormal comedies <laughs> at the time. And it seems to like now be kind of a thing, but that is just, you know, you never know if the zeitgeist is going your way or not. Uh, and I think we can all agree these books are really weird. <laughs> so uh, I think if I had been doing a calculated move, like, oh, I'm going to move into romance, I, I would have probably talked myself out of writing these books. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad that they were a good gateway. And my editor, my first editor, too, but she really just got them and she felt like they would be better served as crossover titles published in the adult world. And I kind of wanted to make that move after my Stranger Things book anyway, because I just was starting to feel as if there are some stories I wanted to tell that I couldn't tell in YA. I mean, you could kind of see I write all over the place and um, sort of follow the muse where it takes me. So it felt like time to do something a little bit different. And my next several books will be adult books. Less crossover and more solidly adult, I think. But we'll see because only one of them is written. <laughs> so what were the challenges and what things came easier writing adult versus YA? So the first adult project I did was really the Stranger Things book. And it's not that one is easier than the other. Honestly, I feel like writing any kind of book takes me about the same amount of time. The middle grades that I wrote with my husband, you know, took just as long to write as one of my solo books. I do love to collaborate. And that's something I really enjoy doing and do a lot of for that reason. But I feel like all novels have their challenges. This one was more fun and easier in some ways to write because there was zero pressure. Um, the sequel was a bit harder just because it was during the pandemic. And, and uh, I'm sure you guys talking to people during this, this time have heard a common refrain. I mean, a lot of us were very productive, but that doesn't mean it was easy. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've read the first in your Cirque American series called oh, Girl yeah. on a Wire, which is about a young woman who's part of a circus family, and she's a wire walker. And I'm about halfway through your middle grade book, um, mm-hmm. The Super Normal Sleuthing Service, which is delightful. You got it right. Yay. Yeah. Uh, we were like, why did we name that book something no one could ever say correctly? <laughs> so there's a bit of magic included in both of these, and I definitely see a theme forming. And you said sci-fi fantasy is a favorite of yours. So this makes sense now, but is it something that you intentionally include when you're writing your books or is it something that just sort of happens because you love that? I think it's something that just sort of happens because I love that. And I don't know. It's interesting. I would hesitate to say that I'll never write anything without a supernatural element because dead air doesn't have a supernatural element. Although it, it has an extra interesting structural thing that we did because we did you know, the podcast that she's doing in addition to the story of the person making the podcast, which almost makes it feel like fantasy or something. But I feel like I just naturally want some weirdness in a book. I feel like the world is strange. So I just having characters deal with strange things heightens the circumstances and just makes it a little bit more interesting. 
to me as a writer, I read everything. And I feel like some of my books have the speculative, like the middle grade, we put everything in there. Those books are like straight up classic fantasy. Uh, I think the circus book, you know, it's a little more subtle, at least until you get closer to the end and you realize that this is really happening. But I think at first you could question, like, is Jules just imagining this? You know, right, right. This curse. So I'm curious about what you were saying about how you like to collaborate. And with the middle grade series, you and your husband collaborated. Yeah, and we're still I, married. And you're still married. <laughs> I want to ask about that because I don't think that I have talked to another author who has collaborated on something that's fiction. What's so a- <laughs> how does that work? What's hilarious, we're longtime friends with um, Cassie Clare and Holly Black. And I remember when they were starting to collaborate and one of them made an offhand remark at like a retreat we were at that was something like, the only person you should never collaborate with is your spouse because, <laughs> because uh, you'll be too nasty with them, right? <laughs> they won't get over it because you don't have the same filter that you have with another writing partner. But we didn't find it that way I mean we definitely had times when we disagreed and I think we've just like set aside whatever we were arguing about and be like okay we have to come up with a third solution here but basically I really wanted to do a hotel detective story which is ridiculous I know because that's not really a I mean it's it it was a thing but a very limited thing and I couldn't figure out how to do one and then one morning I woke up and was like oh it's a hotel for monsters (laughs) and their kids Christopher is, I always say, much more in touch with his inner 12-year-old than I was. (laughs) And he immediately started riffing about, well, what if there's a Bigfoot at the hotel, a Bigfoot kid? And so I was like, we should write this together. So we basically, you know, it was pretty seamless that we fell into the voice and we just took a lot of dog walks. We did do several drafts, both independently and for our agents, just different iterations, different types of world building but we had a lot of fun with it and we just passed google docs back and forth you know i would get up and write before i went to my day job and then christopher would uh come in like 30 minutes before i was due to get home and would be waiting for the words and write his words as quickly as he could and then he would read what we had written every day out loud so it was great I still, Cinder Moss is still one of my favorite characters that I've ever written and and was totally Christopher's invention. Yeah, it is a great character. I'm really enjoying it. Like I said, I'm about halfway through, but it was a great book for, you know, that age group to read or, you know, 49 year old women. (laughs) (laughs) They tried to make it kind of like Pixar, right? Where there's the level that kids get it and then there's stuff in there for the parents too. Absolutely. Well, a lot of your books are part of series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you talked about even the, your newest one, um, Not Your Average Hot Guy. There's a sequel coming out, The Date from Hell, supposed to come out in April. Do you go into a first book in the series knowing that you're going to continue it? Or is it something that's a little more organic seeing where the story takes you? It really depends. I did not actually foresee, I I thought that that was a standalone book when I sold it. And then the publisher, St. Martin's, thought that a sequel would be good and that I had set one up. And I do always try to leave, 
I particularly love open-ended series, open-ended endings, where the author goes out of their way to make it clear that the story continues once the book is done. And so, I mean, it took me like two days to figure out what the sequel would, would be. So that's how that came about. But it, it just depends. You know, with the Lois Lane books, it was, you know, one with the possibility of becoming a series. The Circamericon book, the same, Girl on a Wire, was uh, meant to be a standalone, but then it ended up being a graphic novel and another novel featuring a different character. I mean, I, I think feel like these days it often depends on the publisher. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's more conversation around leaving room for a sequel or a duology because I think the market is so tough and COVID has made everything so unpredictable that they're like, let's leave it where you could do a sequel. <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? If it takes off, if it's good and people want it. And if not, pitch us like what the next book would be that's something else because it's just such a weird time. Hmm. That's interesting. I just I didn't know that 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 they would ask you to maybe leave it slightly open ended. I, I'm curious because like you know it seems like some writers only write standalone novels. You know they don't really write series, and then other authors you know, write lots of different series, but I think readers are the same way. Like I'm not usually a series reader. Mm-hmm. Like to me, sometimes that's like too much commitment, <laughs> you know, to, to a story, but then other readers, I mean, just devour series. Oh yeah. I read you know? both. For me, the series that I love best are again, that open-ended kind of series that I think you do see more of an adult, more so than the trilogy form. Although there have been trilogies that I love, certainly. But I'm almost never reading a series because I need to know what happens, Mm -hmm. right? For like the closed ending. I much prefer a series just as a reader that's more like television, where I'm revisiting the characters in the world and getting a full story out of the book. And then, you know, if I keep reading it, it's because I want to be back in that world with, with a new story that the same characters are experiencing. And I love romance series for that reason too, right? That you get a different couple, you know, often in each book, but you're still, you get a glimpse of the characters from the previous book and the world is the same. Like, I really enjoy that as a reader. You wrote the first Stranger Things novel after the blockbuster series on Netflix came out. It's called Suspicious Minds and it's a prequel to the series that tells the story of Eleven's mother. So... It's interesting because you mentioned that you started out thinking you wanted to be a screenwriter. So now that I'm asking this question, that gives us a whole new dimension. But how would you describe your process of writing a prequel of an ongoing story that is so prominent in fans' minds? You know, I feel like I was lucky because I have been through, like, Lois Lane is one of the most famous characters in history, you know. And so that was a very nerve-wracking thing because I thought... Man, if people hate this, you know, if there's already fan art of any character that you're writing when you're writing a, what we call IP, intellect, someone else's intellectual property, there is an extra level of pressure because you're probably a fan of that character or universe already. And you don't want to do a disservice to the fans and create something that they won't embrace. But at the same time, you kind of have to shut out some of those voices so that you can see what you can bring to it. And I'm pretty choosy about the IP I do. You know, I would not do something I didn't feel like I could both 
do the story in a way that it feels like that universe, but also bring something a little new to it. The editor who asked me to take on this project had asked me to take on like a another project before, a Minecraft project. And I was like, I do not know from Minecraft. So <laughs> no, I'm not right for that. And so then when she came back around and she's like, are you a fan of Stranger Things? Because, you know, we would love to pitch you to Netflix to write this book. And it would be about Eleven's mom and her backstory and how she became involved in the experiment. And it would be a period piece. And, you know, I immediately said yes, because I loved the show. I feel like the Duffers and I are roughly the same age and grew up on all the same things. Yeah. And I also had been dying to write a girl gang story. And so it felt like having a, uh, a friendship group that was centrally female would be the way to go and still be able to center friendships, but make it a little different than the show. And so uh, I was really lucky. We had a, a you know, a writer in the room and they were filming season three while I was writing. So we were able to have really quick input when, when I was running ideas past our, our writing consultant could just run and ask one of the duffers. And that's very unusual. Oh, wow. You know, like just to make sure that I'm not doing anything that they might plan to do, you know, down the road or, you know, in, in some, just to make sure that it's consistent with what they are planning to do. <laughs> And, you know, that was a great experience. The only thing I will say is that people don't realize about IP is how quickly you have to write it in most cases. <laughs> I started Not Your Average Hot Guy for, and then, but I knew I was going to be doing it and would have to set it aside. You know, ultimately you end up having a matter of, you know, if you're lucky, a couple months to knock out these things. And so they're just all consuming and it's, it's all you do. That was a real pleasure that, that book. And even though it has the saddest ending of any of my books, because of course you're pretty locked into uh, <laughs> things are going to get dark. You can't really put a happy ending on what happens to Eleven's mom. But mm -hmm. I do think that it was cool of them to decide that the first character they wanted to give a fuller story was her. And I really appreciate how much freedom I was given. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that you say you were given a lot of freedom because as you're describing it, it sounds like you had lots of parameters and, you know, you're having to check things through them, which is not something that you would normally have to do. I would assume when you're writing something, except for when you're going through the editing process, you know, with your editor at the publisher. But I mean, some people, I think when they have strict parameters, maybe that helps them because the possibilities aren't endless, right? You know, right. did you find that to be the case? Well, I, I'm a big believer that parameters help. I mean, the thing that's different about IP is that you do have to do a detailed outline in advance. And if you don't, it never ends well. Mm. But it actually has helped me. It has changed my process. And I've heard this from lots of other people. And I wrote an essay about this for uh, Uncanny Magazine, if anyone is interested in more about that but before the Lois Lane books I don't know that I really would have known how to outline and I was much more of a pantser I still leave myself room but to me the outline is it allows my brain to be free to come up with details of how things are happening in a more focused way because I'm not having to also figure out, well, what is happening? Does, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So um, it taught me how to learn enough about the characters to do projections in advance so that the shape of the book is in better condition, at least. And then the revision is mostly about deepening and tweaking. But honestly, for Lois Lane and for Suspicious Minds, 
compared to the stories I've heard from friends, I had comparatively little interference. And, you know, like the parameters are more like it's got to be in 1969. So, you know, it was intimidating for me to tackle what for me is a historical setting because mm-hmm. I wasn't born yet in 1969. And I worked a lot of my mom's experiences that she had told me about being a woman in that period, you know, not being able to get a bank account, for instance, by yourself if you were unmarried. Mm-hmm. You know, all those little things that we don't think about. What would happen if someone was pregnant and went to their doctor? How would a doctor treat them in that era? Well, of course, not very well because... Mm-hmm. It was a very sexist time. I I think uh, I was allowed to do things that I was not sure I'd be able to do. And I also was allowed the freedom to decide who Eleven's father was going to be. So, you know, there were quite a few things that I kind of had carte blanche on. And the characters were all the new characters I, you know, created. There was no input on those other than just like, yes, we like them. (laughs) That's very cool. So tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a writer. Well, I always wanted to be a writer. My grandmothers were both very good storytellers. I think that's just a part of kind of Eastern Kentucky culture. So definitely grew up around a lot of people who were good at stories. You mentioned before we started recording that you worked in publicity. Is that right? State government. State government. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, was, was writing something that you did on the side and then you just for sure. I had a day job for about 17 years. Uh, at the time I took it, I was like, Oh, I'll do this for a year or two and then move on or something. I had a professor who was a really good mentor and he knew I wanted to go off and go, I thought to screenwriting school, which I'm glad I didn't now. Although I did kind of start out when I got more serious about writing, writing screenplays. And I was doing that for a few years and it kind of got to the point where I would have had to move away. And that was Mm -hmm. around the time I met my husband. I realized most of the people I knew who wrote in Hollywood for a living were miserable and that I really love it here and didn't want to move out to LA. So it was also around the time that I discovered YA literature. That was kind of the heyday of, you know, people like M.T. Anderson and Mm -hmm. uh, Holly Black's first book had just come out. Scott Westerfeld was just publishing. And some of these people I knew a little bit through science fiction and fantasy. And I just clicked immediately with with that voice and type of writing and thought, this is what I want to do. So I did the smartest thing you can do, which is decide to go into a great amount of debt to go to grad (laughs) school. Uh, So I went to Vermont College's low residency program while I still had my day job. And, you know, I loved my day job. It was very demanding. I was the assistant communications director for the Cabinet for Health and Family Services for most of that time. I did actually start out working in the gut for the governor's press secretary, a governor who was felled by a sex scandal. Mm. So I have a lot of interesting stories of my time in government and politics adjacent. But about five years ago now, uh, or six, I guess, was able to go full time which is a real privilege, uh, but it did take a while. And it took me several book manuscripts to sell my first book. I got my agent, Jen Lofren, who represents my children's and young adult work, right at the end of my grad program, but it took us four books before we sold one. So, wow. yeah. yeah. What was the first book that you published? Blackwood, which is now published under the name Strange Alchemy for wacky business reasons. And uh, that was the fifth book I had written, the fourth manuscript we had shopped. 
we did actually end up selling all of the things that I had written, except for my very first book that was my thesis, which will remain in a drawer <laughs> and a book that my agent never saw. But the other books that we had shopped and people had passed on all ended up being published in some form or another. So I always tell people like, don't assume just because your first book doesn't sell that it will never see the light of day because a lot of it is about getting your foot in the door and then you have a little more flexibility in terms of what people are willing to let you do. I, I don't know. I kind of think writing and publishing, you know, even though from doing the podcast, we've, we've talked to agents, we've talked to writers, and we've heard lots of different stories about how it happens. I, I feel like there's this veil over it. it. It needs to be said like over and over and over again. Yeah. It, it can take a while, you know? Absolutely. And I think that everyone's path is different. Like right. I, for instance, you know, was here in Kentucky working in government for my day job I did have roots in science fiction community and have met a lot of publishing people through that and through my literary blog, which was basically like what the podcast of then, I started getting a lot of freelance work and I wrote for Publishers Weekly on their masthead for about 15 years and mm -hmm. so learned everything about publishing that you can learn interviewing all the people at the highest levels of it and sort of in that ecosystem. And I mean, it's constantly changing and no one knows anything, and there are no hard and fast rules. And I mean, one of the reasons I think it feels that veil of secrecy, as you said, is because everyone's journey is different, and mm -hmm. there are infinite shapes your career can take. And so this is one of my like big soapboxes. I'm, I'm really big on mentoring other writers. I actually help co-found a charity here called the Lexington Writers Room that's designed to give space and community to writers here locally. And we just, we started at the beginning of the pandemic, but this year has been better. <laughs> Once we had a vaccine, we reopened and we have 51 members now. And it's been a really rewarding thing to just give, I mean, we have a real mix of people from all different types of writings and background, people at the very beginning and people who've been around longer and everyone still has questions. Everyone still has doubts and that never goes away. So I think it's really, it is really important to be open about that and to be a resource for other writers when you've been around for a while. Yeah. You've done such a breadth of different things, different kinds of writing that it's really, um, it's really interesting to talk to you and, and to get your perspective on all that. So thanks for talking with us about that. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Gwenda Bond and with Carrie. Carrie, when this airs, we will be through the holidays. What are you reading? So I listened to an audiobook called The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. And I've never read anything by him. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't read a summary beforehand. It was interesting. So let me give you sort of the background of this story. So it's the story of four friends who 10 years ago hunted on land that they weren't supposed to hunt on. They're Native American men. And the land that they hunted on during this Thanksgiving uh, hunting experience was reserved for tribal elders. But they went and hunted on it anyway. And they found a large herd of elk and they basically went to town with their guns. Unfortunately, one of the elk was pregnant. And perhaps this is the reason they had to shoot her multiple times in order to get her to finally die. 
So this novel is about an elk who seeks revenge, which sounds weird. And it is a little weird, but it's also about indigenous culture and tradition and its nuances. And it's about friendship and guilt and mixed race marriage and a whole lot of stuff. And I found myself not sure at one point whether to root for the elk who was going after an innocent teenager, which I think is a sign of a good book because who roots for a child killer, even if it is an elk (laughs) who maybe has the right to seek revenge. These are the thoughts I was having when I was listening to this. I was like, Carrie, you're rooting for a child to be murdered. I loved this book and also felt the same. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, wow. I, I tend to think I'm a pretty ethical person, but I was having some serious like what's wrong with me? But it's, it's a very interesting book. And I think what's not to like, you start out by giving a summary that's an, it's about an elk who seeks revenge. Can't go wrong. (laughs) So like the point of view, is it written from the point of view of the elk or sort of an omniscient or? So it, it switches. So here's the thing, because I had not read a summary, I think the first part, which tells the story of one of these four friends, I think I listened to it, but I didn't really know what was going on until I got to the second part. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) that's what happened to that friend. So the second part of the book is from Lewis. He's sort of like the main character. He's the one who discovered that the elk was pregnant during this episode 10 years ago. And so by the time it gets to his part of the story, I had a better idea of what was going on. And so that's from his perspective. And then the next section is from two other friends and they're sort of together, but you get at different times, a perspective later on in the story of the elk. So it kind of jumps around. So I think it's categorized in horror. It is. Yes. I mean, there's definitely gore, you know, like people die and it is explained in detail for me though. I can listen to horror and read horror and not get freaked out. Now, if this was in a a movie form, I would not be able to watch it, especially if those parts were as visually depicted as they are, you know, in language, Mm. I would not be able to watch it. You start to wonder, like, is Lewis, like, is this real or is he just going nuts? And so Lewis does some things and I was like, whoa, I can picture this pretty well, but not as well as what like a movie would have me picture it. And the author, he is, he's an indigenous writer. Yes. Yes. And the narrator who narrated it is indigenous as well. Cool. So I recommend it. I mean, unless you're, you know, squeamish about horror, you probably would have to speed that part up, but it was definitely creepy and weird and eerie. Well, Gwenda, you said you've read this. What other book have you read to tell us about? Well, the book I just finished is a little bit cheating because it's not out yet, but the book that it is a sequel to is Alex Harrow, who's a member <sighs> of my writing group. Her A Spindle Splintered uh, novella came out this year from Tor.com, which is a retelling sort of Sleeping Beauty beats the Spider-Verse about a girl named Xenia Gray and the sequel Mirror Mended about Xenia where she is after she's been bouncing around different Sleeping Beauty timelines and perhaps has introduced some problems into the fairy tale 
multiverse by doing so and maybe even into our own world is just as good as the first one and um, people will love it and it's wonderful like everything that alex writes you were talking to two alex harrow fangirls oh yay (laughs) we went to her author reading for that anyway we love her and i've read that book and i really enjoyed it so i am glad to know that you give her sequel a thumbs up is it also a novella or is it a it's family? also a novella yep okay but i and i believe it's we like the conclusion of that particular character's story okay. at least for now all right well amy what have you been reading so i'm going to talk about a book called bellwether rhapsody by i author- love this book Gosh, <laughs> <guys are up. laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm a huge fangirl for uh, that author i love her other book too well the author's name is kate raculia And this is a book that surprised me. I think that I maybe picked it out originally because of the cover. And on the cover of the book that I have, it looks very serene. There's a blanket of snow with a grand piano in the foreground (laughs) with a towering hotel in the background. And somehow it reminded me of Quebec when we visited. And it seemed very calming and lovely and and maybe slightly holiday-ish, right? (laughs) So... So I started it, and this book is indeed a wonderful story, but it isn't at all serene. Uh, in fact, there's a hint of the Shining vibe going oh, yeah. on, mixed with an Agatha Christie mystery and with some mm-hmm. themes of, a, of an abusive music teacher like the Academy Award-winning movie Whiplash <laughs> from several years ago. So in this book, the opening scene is in 1982, and a teenage girl named Minnie is at the Bellwether Hotel in rural upstate New York when she is witness to a murder-suicide in room 712. And so then jump ahead 15 years, and the Bellwether is hosting its yearly high school music festival for the best musicians and choral members in the state. And there's a set of twins, Rabbit and his sister Alice, who both qualify. He for bassoon in orchestra and Alice for the chorus. And we all probably have memories of doing something similar in high school. Maybe not for music, but I went to something similar for journalism. My son did Model UN and debate. Teens go away on a school trip with other teens and things happen. Like maybe kids try to sneak in alcohol or pot. Maybe sex is a component too when a chaperone isn't paying close attention. And that's the scene at the Bellwether on this particular weekend in November 1997. And the Bellwether is an older hotel which used to be grand but is now a bit worn and weary. So Alice's roommate for the festival is a girl she's never met before named Jill who is a flute prodigy and her mother is the head of the festival. And Jill's mother berates her and tries to control every aspect of her life to ensure that she lives up to her promise as a musician but in such a way that Jill no longer loves music. And so their first night at the festival, Alice and Jill sneak a bottle of red wine into their room and they get drunk. They spill the bottle on the bed. Alice runs out to get some towels from housekeeping. But when she returns, Jill is hanging from the ceiling from an extension cord. And Alice thinks that she has committed suicide. So Alice runs to get help from the hotel security. But when they come, Jill is no longer there. And their room is room 712 
So combine this scenario with a huge blizzard that snows them in and you have the making of a great whodunit. But this definitely leans more towards literary fiction because in many ways it's a coming of age story that explores issues of sexuality and guilt and abuse and sibling relationships. One of the things that I liked about this book, though, is that the author has an interesting way of inserting violence into normal life situations that makes the violence seem even more shocking because you aren't really expecting it. But the overall tone of the book isn't overly dark. There's a lightness to it, like a slight dark humor that keeps it from being scary or morose. It reminded me a little bit of a Wes Anderson film, Mm -hmm. maybe not as madcap as that, but this book has a quirky cast of characters. And in fact, there's a list of the characters with descriptions at the beginning of the book. And sometimes these characters are a bit ridiculous and over the top. I really enjoyed this one. I gave it four stars and I want to read more by this author. I think it would appeal to uh, lots of different types of readers, mystery readers, literary fiction readers, those who are interested in music, and maybe even YA readers, although this isn't really a, a YA book, but I would highly recommend. And I'm glad to know, Gwenda, that you really liked it too. Oh, yeah. And the Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts is her second novel, and it is basically the Westing game for adults. Oh, Oh, cool. Much lighter, much lighter in tone, I think, even than than the first one. It's very fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. These all sound good. Let's take another quick break. We are back with Gwenda, and she's going to answer her questions. You ready, Gwenda? I'm ready. All right. You created a podcast that is a serialized and scripted mystery called Dead Air. Tell us about the experience of producing it, and how was it different from the other writing you do? So Dead Air was originally created for a company then known as Serial Box. Now they're known as Realm. And they do kind of a writer's room-esque process. So they do have some solo projects now, but for the most part, it's several writers working together under a showrunner type person. And so I had this idea for a book and I was told teens don't listen to podcasts. (laughs) So it would be not great for to be a novel. So I pitched it to them and they liked it. And then I got to recruit who I wanted to write it with. And I was able to convince my dear friend, Carrie Ryan of the forest of hands and teeth fame, who's great at writing thrillers. And also Rachel Kane, who sadly passed away last year. And so she was one of my writing heroes and I think is just a legend who's written so many wonderful books. It was a real gift to get to work with her on this project right before she got ill again. So it was a completely different process. We went to New York and we were there with the Serial Box staff. I had written a series Bible and then we spent the weekend plotting the entire season scripted podcast out and choosing episodes and putting stickies on a glass wall And then we went back to our separate ways and created Google Docs and exchanged about a thousand emails (laughs) and wrote the episodes. The premise of the show is a podcaster who is a journalism student at the University of Kentucky who has recently become obsessed with true crime and true crime podcasts because she lost her cousin 
in sort of what she believes was a strange circumstance. And she starts telling the story on the college radio station of a local heiress who died famously in a murder many years before. And it turns out that the murder victim's son is a classmate at the college and wants to know what really happened to. So the story of them investigating it while she's also doing a podcast about the original murder. And we did both the story from her perspective and also the podcast episodes and as a separate production. And you can get that anywhere you get your podcast now because it's it was originally behind a paywall, but now it is free for all (laughs) cool did you hire people to narrate it or were you all doing the company that that we did it for hired people i got to cast everyone for the fake podcast (laughs) um, and the narrator for the the main story and it was so much fun and they composed music for the fake podcast and the production is really really well done i'm i'm super happy with it you know uh, kentucky accents can be um a bit over the top so i think that <laughs> our narrator lynn norris really nailed the accent and you probably got to use some of those screenwriting yeah the writing that the po- writing the especially the podcast episodes was very much like Carrie uh, and I did most of that and it, it very much is like a script format yeah so it was a super cool project I'm, I'm very proud of it and I'm glad that more people are finding it now that it's out and that realm has put all of their some great stories they have I also worked on another one of theirs with a bunch of other people including Kirsten White called uh, remade and i think that one is going to be released as a podcast sometime this year so realm media is the who to look at with the popularity of that show only murders in the building which kind yeah. of sounds like it has a similar you it know does. kind it of does. vibe to it yeah well okay we're going to do question number two now you practice okay. yoga as i have as well and i've <laughs> seen pictures on your instagram where you sometimes do yoga at home And as a person (laughs) who has many pets, I just need to know how this is possible because when I have tried to do yoga at home during COVID, having my pups all up in my business (laughs) while I'm down on the floor takes the serenity out of it. So Uh, I need to know what are your tips? I think you just have to embrace that it's going to be different. It's going to be <laughs> yoga with animals. Uh, even my yoga instructor, who, when I'm doing it at home, it's usually because I'm following one of her Instagram lessons. Her dogs and cats frequently appear <laughs> and come up and lick her in the face while she's leading practice. So. <laughs> You just have to let go of the control thing. That's right. And what she would say would be something like how uh, yoga teaches us, right? How to get better at life. And sometimes we can't control our environment in life. (laughs) I guess that is something that I need to work on in all aspects of my life. So maybe I have to embrace it. Yeah. (laughs) See, here's the thing. I don't have a problem because when I do yoga in my bedroom the cats just stare at me they don't they don't need to be part of it they're just giving me that look like and we knew you were stupid so you know that's what they do they just give me the stink eye so all right last question you live in an old house in lexington kentucky what is your favorite spot or thing about your older house and what is the worst part of being a homeowner of an older house 
Um, the, my, my favorite thing about it is just all the original detail in the history that has, it was originally a doctor's office. So we have a kind of an elaborate front room with tile and pressed tin ceilings and also a bunch of doors that we've had to block off with bookcases <laughs> because they, they were exam rooms. Like so the rooms are exam rooms. It was one of the first African-American physicians in this part of the city lived next door. And then this was his son's clinic later and so when we first moved to the neighborhood there were lots of people who could remember running up to the door to get things sewn up and whenever we do digging in the backyard we we bring up like these patent medicine bottles that people are like don't people think they're root work and it's like no these are these are just bad medicine (laughs) left over because that period everyone used them you know because we've had a couple of archaeology friends look them up the worst part is of course exactly what you would think it would be which is that nothing is a standard nothing is square if you have to get any kind of a thing replaced it's going to be more expensive because it has to be done custom made we tried a diy project when we first bought the house and it was a huge well it almost was a huge disaster our neighbor saved us but um we realized pretty quickly that it was going to be beyond our abilities to do much diy with uh, an old house well, it sounds pretty cool that you you can have your own archaeological dig in your own backyard. Because <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, we found like a four thousand year old spear point back there. Oh There's all gosh. kinds of stuff back there. <laughs> I was a little worried what you were going to say. You dug up when you said it. Was <laughs> <laughs> so far, nothing. So far, no remains or anything. You know. <laughs> Well, Gwenda, it has been so fun chatting with you, learning about all your different book projects. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. You can find Gwenda on Instagram at Gwenda Bond or on her website, www.gwendabond.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Do you have a favorite book you'd like to share with us or feedback for what types of guests you'd like to hear from? If so, send us a message through our website. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.